Welcome and good to see you all. I, I did have a name tag. Um, it fell off. Evidently, my suit is resistant to name tags, though not resistant to children um, or their messes, I've found on numerous occasions. And so I just stuck it to my um, bulletin so that I would have it with me, but it just kept falling on if I was distracting myself. It's so good to be with you all. Um, I always think it, it's an incredible privilege to be here. Uh, and I always think it's an incredible act of generosity on Dick's part, your church's part, to be able to preach here. I was talking to a friend just a couple weeks or a couple days ago, and he said, so you're preaching on Sunday? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, so what was the topic? And I told him, I said, you know, it's the first talk in this series that they were doing. And he said, I would never have an outsider come and do the first talk in a series. That just seems really dangerous. And I said, well, really, if you knew the congregation and their deep commitment and belief that um, it's the whole of the congregation engaging in ministry together and that it's open to what God is doing, you'd actually see that it's really consistent with how they do life together. And it's one of the most special things I think about Community Bible Church is um, an openness and generosity of spirit and a desire to press ministry out uh, so that it's not we have a paid person, let them do the work, but that all of us are being invited in. And so um, I'm really grateful to be here. Uh, I was really delighted to hear that you're, uh, some of you or many of you are working on rules of life. Uh, just two weeks ago, I took a part of a retreat day, and I just was reviewing my own rule of life and noticing how um, critical it was for me to have written down in a place where I see it every day, the structures by which I want to organize rest and work, uh, family um, and activity, reflection and act, um, all of that together. Uh, I'd written one about two years ago, and I've realized I just need to review it about every month um, and certainly rewrite it um, nearly every quarter as life changes. But it's been life-giving to me to say, I have a reason for the things that I do and a way of thinking through what I'm doing. Um, Dick put up uh, this chart, which I think is really helpful um, as a way of thinking about how Jesus enters in our life. So uh, let me pray for us, and then let's jump in together. Lord, I suspect um, you desire Kairos moments to occur uh, frequently in our lives, um, and you desire to get our attention and then invite us to respond. And so we pray, um, focus our attention on you and what you intend for us to know, to become, and to do, so that we would be a congregation that follows you. We would repent and believe and call others to do the same. Um, amen. We all want to follow Jesus, and I'm convinced that primarily we are following Jesus in the context of our decision-making. Because when you're at a steady state and nothing is changing in your life, there's no need to actually follow. You're just standing still. And the context of our life, both at the big decisions that Dick mentioned as we were starting, as well as the very small decisions on what will my attitude be when I wake up this morning, how will I engage my family um, or my housemates as I begin the day? Um, what will I say to that colleague at work? All of these are places where I think at some level Jesus desires to get our attention. To say to us, come, follow me. Into this interaction, into this place, into this time, I have something to say uh, to you. But particularly at the, those big moments of life where we're making transitional decisions. Um, who will I marry? Where will I work? What's my calling in life? Uh, 
this cycle then becomes increasingly critical. I think for you as a church, as you engage in pressing out into missional communities, um, as you begin to um, think deeper and um, more thoroughly about how to reach the communities around you, you're going to be pressed into this kind of decision-making cycle. On a weekly basis, you're going to have to confront these kind of questions. I know I did um, the two biggest decisions I think I ever made, or our three biggest, were should I get married, um, should I move to New York, uh, and then should we have children. And as I was reflecting on um, this cycle, I realized it, it was relevant at all three levels. So let's look at the story again in Acts 15 as a way of thinking about how Jesus gets our attention at times of decision-making. So it, Acts 15 begins, um, some men came down from Judea, and it's always down because you're moving down from Jerusalem, um, even though you're headed north, right? So it always makes a little oddness in geography. You're going down toward the north, which we associate with up. But they were thinking Jerusalem is the highest place spiritually, figuratively. So they were going down um, from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, let's be clear. These were Christians going to mixed Christian, Samaritan, and um, Greek congregations saying, all of you have to become Jews in order to join the covenant community that God established through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and become a Jew and become part of this movement that Jesus started. This brought, naturally, as you can imagine, Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed by the Antiochian church where they had just left and returned from the first missionary journey um, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled for, uh, through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything that God had through, done through them. So remember the context, if you will, for the book of Acts, right? Jesus has ascended into heaven. The church has been persecuted and been sent out. And then they begin to encounter all sorts of difficulties in spreading the message of Jesus Christ. Resistance from the people, um, the Jews in Judea, um, as they move into Samaria and other parts. Um, Peter initially has that experience where he goes up to pray the house of Simon the Tanner, and the sheet comes down filled with unclean food, many of which we would find delicious today. And uh, he goes, you know, Lord, I can't eat that. That's unclean. And Jesus, the voice of Jesus says, I'm the one who decides what's clean or unclean. <coughs> the cloth goes up, the cloth comes down, the cloth goes up, the cloth comes down, the cloth goes up. And then he receives an invitation from um, a Roman centurion who seems to be a God-fearer, somebody who's interested and committed to the Jewish religion, but still clearly a Gentile, who says, I've heard about these things. Come talk to me. And Peter decides to break um, even more of the Jewish boundaries that kept the Jews from interacting with Gentiles, goes to this house and eventually says, now I see that God shows no partiality at all. He wants everybody to respond and um, baptizes the family of the centurion. Paul then um, is called into the mission of God, um, joins the Antiochian church, which <clears throat> is filled with people who are incredibly diverse, right? The early church leadership of that church were um, people who were in the household of Herod, so high in the positions of power. Um, Barnabas was there, who was from Cyprus. Um, Niger, uh, sorry, Lucius, who was called Niger, which we need black from um, North Africa. People throughout the area. It was this um, socioeconomically, culturally diverse group of people who then send out Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, where suddenly they're watching Gentiles respond to the faith in great numbers. And it's clear as they're beginning to be baptized and experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, God is bringing them into the kingdom. So the 
world is beginning to change the early church. All of a sudden, everybody becomes part of their mission field. They're called across cultural barriers to go and to proclaim the good news. Jesus died in our place and on our behalf to reconcile us to God, to send us out to be part of God's renewal of all of creation. And then all of a sudden, the staunch Jewish believers from Jerusalem come down and say, look, um, this is all great. We love this. This is a Jewish religion you're proclaiming. So become a good Jew first. That's how you're going to be part of this new community. And what's at stake here is two things. One of which is, if it's true that you have to be circumcised before you can become a Christian, then all of a sudden there are all these barriers, physical but as well as cultural, about what's, whether you can be incorporated into this new community. <clears throat> it means that until you give up your own culture and your own identity to join the culture of somebody else, there's no way you could become a Christian. And it began to create barriers for how the church could interact with other people because if you have to be circumcised and follow all of the kosher food rules, et cetera, you could never really engage the Jewish population, I mean the non-Jewish population around you. They were perpetually unclean, right? If you had to follow all the ceremonial laws that are in the Old Testament, how could you, like, hey, let's grab coffee together? Not that they did, but the equivalent in ancient times. Well, I would grab coffee with you except that, you know, your everything, your house is unclean, I can't eat your food, never mind. Um, what's at stake for the early church is both can they fellowship together as a single body as well as can they be equipped to reach out beyond their own cultural norms to engage the people around them. Now, I want to suggest that this is something that we wrestle with all of the time, even today at the church. Then um, one of the best examples I had of this was I was visiting a church in New Jersey called New Providence Presbyterian. It's a great church. It has this big, elegant, lovely building. It's this very wealthy suburb. It's clear that they have a lot of resources. And I was there for a conference, and I happened to be speaking to the youth pastor. And I said, you know, you have a lovely facility. It's just really remarkable how well kept up it is. I grew up um, in a church where uh, it looked like you decorated by raiding grandma's basement, if you know what I mean. So he, the youth pastor said, you know, it's true. We have a lovely facility. Praise God. And we try to use it well. You should really be here on Friday night. I said, what happens Friday night? He said, um, this church, the entire building, sanctuary, every room um, of this very formal Presbyterian church uh, becomes basically the community center for a community. It's filled. Every room is filled with uh, high school kids. We have um, a rock band playing in that room. We have games over here. We've created a skateboard park over there. He said, and I said, wow, that must cause some tension as you try to clean up knowing churches as they do, right? Especially the parlor where the nice furniture is. He said, we never have a problem. He said, you know, the, the biggest challenges honestly have been um, the police and the ambulance uh, department at our local community have just started to park outside of our building every Friday night because more weeks than not, um, there's at least one drug overdose or a significant marijuana problem in the church during this thing. And I said, well, how did your church deal with it? He said, the elders are thrilled because we know we're reaching the right kind of people when our church becomes a place where the police have to help us save people from drug overdoses while they're participating in our activities. Those are the kids who need us. The really nice kids who would do the SAT prep classes on their own, they don't need to be here on Friday night. It's those kids, and the elders told us, um, don't worry about the police having to come. We're behind you, youth ministry, because that's why we exist, to reach those who don't yet know. Right? They were wrestling with the boundary issue right there of, is the church a place for nice people or needy people who need the gospel? 
So as I was looking at your missional community thing and thinking about the coffee house ministry that the deals are thinking, I thought, wouldn't it be fantastic not that you have drug busts here at church? But if we as a church began to wrestle with how edgy could that coffee house be if it would really serve the people around us? And what challenges would it be to us in our understanding of what holy space looks like to believe that um, holiness is not defined by the temple where you purified yourself to go in, but holiness is defined by Jesus going out to those who don't yet know and actually bringing holiness to them rather than being defiled by who they were, right? So as you think about wrestling these questions, this passage becomes live for you in all the missional communities. Who's going to be allowed in? How are they going to be comfortable? Who are we going to become? So what was the process that they led when Jesus all of a sudden gets their attention and he says, look, look at what I'm doing in the church and look at the reality that you have all of the Old Testament laws. How are you going to wrestle with being faithful to scripture and faithful to my mission at the same time? Right? And if you watch Jesus throughout the entire, entirety of the Gospels, he's just irritating people constantly because he's provoking them to make a decision. Right? The parable of what we call the prodigal son, I like to think of it as the searching father, doesn't end with what happens to the older brother because Jesus is talking to those Pharisees and basically saying, I'm not going to tell you what happens to the older brother because your decision of what you do will tell you how that story ends. Right? Let those of you without um, sin cast the first stone. What are you going to do? Come, follow me. And then he just walks away and sees if they're going to come. At every moment, Jesus is saying, make a decision now. And he's inviting them into this process. So what does the early church do when confronted by an opportunity to discern what God is calling them to do, to become, and to know? Well, they begin to talk together, right? They call this meeting, and um, Paul and Barnabas come down. Um, the, er the early church leaders meet at Jerusalem. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. This is how you know God. Right? And Jesus was faithful to all of this. He told us he did not come to overturn the law, but to fulfill it. Why should this be different? And the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After a lot of discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you want to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they. And you'll notice what Peter is doing is um, he's inviting them to observe. The first step of what happens when you begin to encounter God and you want to think through repentance, which isn't necessarily just the confession of sin. It's just the reorientation of your life Godward. Right? Sometimes it's a confession of sin and you change your direction. Sometimes it's just a course correction issue. And so Peter reflects on his experiences and their collective experience of God's work among them. Look, years ago, you know what happened to me. We talked about this already once. We celebrated it once already. We saw the results. People started coming to follow Jesus. The churches increased in size and evangelistic impact. What is there left to talk about is essentially what he's saying. Because when you want to observe, part of what you're trying to pay attention to is God's work among you. What is God already doing? Because what we believe deeply out of our theological commitment is not that we initiate things, but we're constantly responding to what God has already initiated. He extends grace, and then we accept him as Lord and Savior. He provokes a move of the Spirit in a community, and then we respond. Part of the missional communities, 
process for you all has been, what is God already doing in our hearts and our congregation? How do we get alongside that? Because if it's all about our initiative and not paying attention to what God is already doing, it's going to be exhausting. And it will be futile, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, we would labor in vain. And I want to suggest that as you pay attention, um, as you observe what God is doing, it requires a couple things. One thing is it requires us to pause long enough to observe, right? That's why the discipline that um, Dick mentioned earlier of you work, but you have to rest. You have to seek silence and solitude enough to pay attention to what's going on. Because if you don't do that, you're just so busy. All of us, um, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, as you know. Um, I had this remarkable experience two weeks ago. I actually had a meal at a restaurant because I was uh, traveling where I didn't have an agenda. It was the first meal I could remember in months where I didn't either have a meeting with somebody over the meal, was trying to do work while I was eating my meal, or if I was with my family, trying to get food into the kids' mouths while feeding myself and watching the time as they either have to go to school or go to sleep. I can't tell you how relaxing it was. I mean, it was only 20 minutes, but I could just feel like the tension in my shoulders began to drop, and I was like, look, I'm actually tasting this food. I don't have to be anywhere after this meal. It was just astounding. I could feel all the tension in my soul just begin to unwind. And how it allowed me a little space just to listen to God. It was the first meal in months I had done that. You see that all the time when Moses um, encounters God in the Sinai in um, Exodus, it's either three or four. Um, he sees the burning bush, and the passage is really clear. He stopped. He turned to look at the bush. It got his attention, and it stopped him in his journey of herding sheep, and he had to turn his attention and pay attention to what was going on. It happens all of the time when we see students and staff in InterVarsity Effective in Evangelism. What they're always doing is um, they're trying to pay attention to what God is doing, and they stop long enough to ask. So the, uh, Christina was a student at Baruch College. She said, I was just going to the washroom. I used the bathroom, was washing my hands, and I noticed this girl. She seemed to be disturbed, and I prayed a prayer for a second. God, what do you want me to do? And she said, I was horrified. God said, go talk to her. And so she said, I did the really awkward thing. I started a conversation with a stranger in the bathroom. And within 40 minutes, the girl had just basically shared her entire life story, responded to the gospel, became a Christian, and got involved in the chapter. Was it because Christine was going, I'm going to share the gospel with you and you and you? No, she said, I asked God what he was doing. I stopped long enough to listen, and then I obeyed. I think not only do you have to pause, but you have to pay attention to what's going on, Right? Um, you have to actually have your eyes open, which means we can't fill our lives so deeply and so thoroughly with our own agendas, our own timelines, and our own activities that um, we can't even look around what's going around, what's going on around us. Um, I was just um, like with Anne earlier, and we just said, you know, how so much of our lives can be, then I dropped my kids off here, and I picked up them here, and blah, 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 blah. I'm not paying attention at all to what's going on around me. And so I'm trying to discipline myself. Uh, when I open up the New York Times or look at CNN.com, God's multi-billion dollar way to get me prayer requests in a very timely way. <laughs> do I read it just for the information or do I pause, stop long enough to observe, God, what are you doing in the world? Where's their brokenness that I should be interceding for? Where's there something I could celebrate and praise you for? What's stirring in my heart so I know I need to go? And I, I want to suggest that that stirring in our heart is part of the observation. It's not just the objective facts out there, but it's actually what is God stirring in your heart? Um, when I decided, I was a leader of InterVarsity in Chicago, ministry was going great, I had great opportunities to preach and to teach, people knew me, and then InterVarsity said, do you want to move to New York? We are desperately in need of a leader for New York and New Jersey. 
and we think you might be qualified, would you pray and consider it? And if anybody, everybody in our varsity knows it takes me months to make these kind of decisions. I'm pokey because I just think through every option and months after month of thinking and praying, my wife's like, please decide already, you know. And because my wife and I, um, I take about nine to 18 months to make a big decision, like should I get married, much to her pain? Should I, um, should we move to New York? Should we have children? Jen is like, we should make the decision. She makes the decision and then after we make the decision, she agonizes for nine to 18 months about the impact. Which means for us, it's always like a three-year process of one of us in agony about a decision. But I, I remember, um, I remember uh, the night before I had to give my final decision, um, Jen's like, so what are you going to say to them tomorrow morning? I was like, I don't know. I really don't. And she just was like, okay, great. I'm going to go to sleep. Right? She's like, done. I'm not even going to pray for you anymore. I'm just going to go to sleep. We'd invited friends to pray. I went upstairs. Um, our at that apartment, our bedroom's in the basement, so I went upstairs, sat on, lay down on the couch, and I just said, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. And all of a sudden, I found myself crying. And I, I was like, I'm not really a teary person. Um, I'm like, what's going on? And I realized my heart was grieving. Um, and what I realized was I was grieving the losses of leaving Chicago. And somehow my heart knew before my head what the right thing to do was. And all of a sudden, I was like, I'm going to miss my parents. I'd never lived more than 30 miles from them. Right, and also I'm, I'm going to move away from my family. I'm going to move away from my friends. I'm going to let go of everything I know. I'm gonna, it was like having a massive stroke coming to New York, New Jersey. It was all the information I had. Like, I could have told you schools and, like, who's there, what kind of, like, every, also people like, I live in rah, 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 rah. And I go to rah, 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 rah university because those words about nothing to me for the first year that I was, right? It was, like, purposely choosing amnesia. But my heart knew. And I started to grieve. Part of observation just objectively what's going on out there, but also what's going on in here. What's interesting to me is not, they don't just do that, because then Paul and Barnabas kick in as well with Paul and Barnabas tell about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. But then notice what James does. After uh, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas speak about God's work around them, James says, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. Now, it's interesting. James calls Peter Simon, so he doesn't use a Greek name for Simon. He uses a very Jewish name, a Hebrew name for Simon, because he's identifying with those Hebrews who are really struggling with the change that might happen. And then he says, the word of the prophets are in agreement with us, and it is written. And then he quotes a section of scripture. And I think that ordering is actually helpful to us because they study, after studying their experiences of God's work among them, they also, and then, study the scriptures to provide a norm against which to measure the experiences. Right? They don't just start with, let's study scripture, and then whatever our experience leads us to, we will go with. But they pay attention to what God is doing, and they go, Are, is what God is doing, how we interpret it, consistent with what scripture actually teaches? Because in the, even if we thought, man, it looks like a great work of God, and it's clear from studying scripture, this isn't really how God works, this couldn't be the direction God goes, then we have to reevaluate whether that was a work of God or not. Right? Our subjective interpretation of the events around us and what's going on in our heart have to get normed against, does scripture really teach this? Um, and scripture is the authority against which we um, understand and interpret our experiences in this observation stage of discernment. Um, Ajith Fernando, who's a Sri Lankan Bible expositor, fantastic, um, point out, um, you often need to distinguish when you're interpreting experiences between two ways that it interacts with scripture. Um, you might observe something happening and think, I should do that. And it may be permitted by scripture, but not required by scripture. 
And he said, if it's permitted by scripture, then maybe your experience is true for you, but you shouldn't be teaching it, it as if it was authoritative for everybody, that they had to experience that too. And those of us who've hung around the church world long enough have watched that happen all the time, right? I have this one prayer experience. It seems to be okay with the Bible, so now I want everybody to have the same prayer experience, and it never goes well. He says, though, when you see an experience of God, and you see in Scripture it's required by God, then it's fair for us to say everybody should go do that. And that's why we're unapologetic about saying everybody needs to learn to share their faith and do it. Everybody should have regular times engaged with God in worship and confession and intercession, right? But not everybody needs to worship in the exact same way. Not everybody's going to experience prayer in the exact same way. It's great to learn about those things, but we won't require it. Um, and so they observe by studying their experiences, external and internal. They study the scripture norm their, um, their experiences, and then they start reflecting together. Um, they consider what's at stake, right? Personally, what's at stake for all of them is the way of life that I've pursued, many of these people for 30, 40, 50 years, is going to radically change if Gentiles enter this church. Um, my understanding of what's clean and not clean, what's holy and unholy, where I can go, who I can talk to, what I can eat, where all of that up for grabs suddenly. Right? It's terrifying for them. They have to think about the impact for the people of God. What's going to happen to our community when we start doing this? And we redefine their entire experience of what Jesus is like. And then they're thinking about the mission of God. I think there are a lot more Gentiles than there are Jews. There's a huge mission field out there. What are we going to do to ensure that they hear the gospel? Right? The reflection isn't just about how do I feel about it, but it's this really systemic uh, piece that they're wrestling with. Um, they're also reflecting, I think, on... Um, What's the culture that this change, um, what's the culture, or they study the culture in which this change must be applied. Because you'll notice, James says, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Let's lower the barriers for them to come into the gospel. Let's increase our ability to engage them. And it's mission-focused, not fellowship-focused. He's not asking what would be good for our table fellowship. He's asking what would be good for those who have not yet heard. That's the priority. And he says, instead, we should write to them, um, abstain from food polluted by idols, sexual immorality from meat strangled, uh, strangled animals, because that's not kosher, and from blood. Um, for Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, why was this critical? Um, he's in part choosing to do this not because he's, I mean, he is concerned about table fellowship, but he's really concerned about how this impacts those who haven't yet heard. And he says, look, everybody out there knows that um, the Jewish religion, of which Christianity is an outgrowth, has always taught these things. And if you start trampling the kosher food laws and um, you're sexual Im uh, sexually immoral, um, essentially you'll alienate every Jew in the cities um, around the empire. They will no longer interact with you. And the Gentiles won't be able to make heads or tails of what you're talking about, because you'll just be a completely new cult. So for the sake of those who we would still like to invite, Jewish and Gentile, let's choose a, a small number of things that will require the Gentiles to change their life for the sake of the mission, so that we don't alienate the Jews here in Jerusalem or on the field, and require the Jewish believers to make huge changes in their lifestyle so that we don't alienate the Gentiles in the mission field. And we're going to do this because we understand it would have been fine and biblical to say there's no requirements. Jesus and Jesus alone. But he said for the sake of the mission, we're going to ask everybody to sacrifice a little because that's what the world needs to see, right? And this is how we circumcise Christian freedom by the needs of the mission. 
And I think um, James is doing an excellent job of exegeting the culture there. He's reflecting not on just the impact for us, but the impact as you apply it in the culture. And then he's super practical, as they all are, right? Um, Peter points that out. Why are you going to impose these laws that we failed so miserably at? Right? It's not a theological argument. He's just like, practically, really, come on, people. We're all here because we know we couldn't do those things. Give me a break. Like, we're going to burden somebody else with this. Um, and then, after you observe and you reflect on, on the process, um, you have to discuss it. And what's interesting to me is community is the context in which reflection is defined and refined. Um, this doesn't occur individually. And in the West, we often pursue discernment questions about our life individually, right? Um, and why it goes wrong is until you have the context of community, you can't observe or uh, reflect clearly. I I've told this story before, um, but you all know, right, I come from kind of doctor family, maybe 21 cousins, aunts and uncles who are doctors in my just immediate kind of family. Um, my dad, super disappointed that I was going to go on staff with InterVarsity. Good Christian, church leader, and because he's a church leader, a little nervous about trusting me to the church. Um, and uh, so he just did not want me to go out raise support because his entire point was, look, we came to the United States, we worked really hard so that you wouldn't have to be dependent on people. So when I said, you know, I want to raise funds for a living dad, through all of our friends, family and neighbors, he was horrified. So I went to my friends and said, look, I feel called to university staff, mom and dad aren't super supportive, what should I do? I went to all my, white, uh, my Asian friends, right, because I had a lot of those being Asian, and um, every one of them quoted the exact same verse, which you can imagine what it would be, right, if you go to Asians saying, Mom and Dad oppose this. What verse do you think they quoted to me? Exactly. Honor your mother and father. This is the first command of the promise. Always from Ephesians, right, because the Colossians verse follows that immediately with fathers don't exasperate your children. Asians don't like that one at all. It makes no sense to them. I'm not convinced it was translated half the time. So they quote me from Ephesians, and then they would tell me these stories. Greg, there was this missionary. His parents opposed him going to the mission field, so he waited. Not just one year, not just two years, but decades he waited till on their deathbed. His parents repented and said, we were wrong. You go to the mission field and serve God. And so he went, and thousands came to faith because he was faithful to wait till he had his parents' blessing. Right? I mean, there's, I, I can't tell you how many stories there are like that. Um, I went then to my non-Asian friends and said, what do you think I should do? Mom and dad think this. I feel called to this. And every one of them quoted other Bible verses. Greg, you know, Jesus went up to a man and said, come follow me. And the man said, let me bury my father first. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. Anybody who loves his mother and father more than he loves me is not worthy of the kingdom of God. Greg, pursue the kingdom of God. Your family will follow. Then they would tell me these stories of missionaries who, <laughs> faced with parental opposition, said, mom and dad, I love you, but I must serve Jesus and I will sacrifice my family ties with you if I must. And they went to the mission field and thousands came to faith. <laughs> Because of their faithfulness to Jesus first, I'm like, yellow people, white people, come together. <laughs> it's one Bible, we need to talk. Right, but the reality is our cultural stories from the Asian community and the Western community totally chose which verses people would cite to me. The individualistic Western people chose individualistic verses, pursue Jesus, don't worry about the family. Asians with their hierarchy and family context said, pursue the family, that's the way you'll honor God. Everything will come, right? I mean, and you want to say, we have to pursue this together because if I only listen to one kind of voice, the voice in my own head, I'll choose one kind of outcome. But the whole people of God, reading scripture together, evaluating experiences, or give us multiple lenses. That's why we need men and women, right? Studying and reflecting and teaching on scripture together. We need um, people of high uh, 
high um, net worth as well as low net worth. We need people of every ethnicity and culture because it's only as those multiplicity voices come together that I think we get a clearer sense of what's going on. Um, that's why a couple of my friends, as they've been pursuing major life decisions, when they know Jesus is trying to get their attention, they've actually called a discernment group together. And they've said, I don't want to make this decision by myself based on my own opinions and own prejudices. So they gather a diverse group of friends and they say, come to my house, I'll feed you dinner. For 20 minutes, I'll tell you everything I can think about in my decision-making process. The pros, the cons, why I'm interested, why I'm afraid. And then um, they release them and say, would you take uh, 30 to 40 minutes in silence and just listen to what God might be saying to you? What scriptures come to mind? What questions are coming to mind? Um, what issues are moving your spirit? And then they gather them back together at the end of the evening and say, just talk at me. Tell me what you, what you hear from the Lord. And they've, they've said remarkably time after time how incredibly consistent the word is. That somebody said, you know, I just felt like this verse was laid on me. They said, I didn't think of that verse, but I thought a verse that's exactly like that on the other side of scripture, right? And slowly, God began to speak through the community. But, right, I think some of us would wrestle like, I'm not sure I want to give decision-making authority away like that. And that's precisely why, as we do discussion, we need the context of the community of God around us to help us do that interpretation. And what happens for the early church is they're in the midst of this discernment period where God is getting their attention, is coming in. There was incredible discord, right? There's division in the church. There's heated arguments. If you don't do this, you aren't going to be saved. And then Paul and Barnabas wandering around telling everybody, I think building a coalition of people like, look at the amazing things that are happening. We're going to go to Jerusalem and talk about it. Isn't it amazing, right? And so they all get together. There's incredible discord coming in. And going out, there's amazing unity. In verse 22, as the early church is announcing the decision, what they say is, um, uh, the, then the apostles and elders, with the whole of the church, chose some of their own men to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and they write this letter, and they point out in verse 25, so we all agreed to choose some men and to send them to you. Where there was discord, when they went through a good process of paying attention, observing what God was doing, reflecting on it well, engaging in a community, where there's discord, there's unity at the end. Coming in, there were strong feelings and convictions and dissension. Going out, they had a high degree of unity. And I think the astounding thing, by the time they finished reflecting on it, they use this, um, this language, which wasn't part of our scripture reading, but they say in verse 20, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything more than these requirements. Right? The astounding thing is when we work together in community, it's our partnership with God getting us a better sense of what God is actually doing in the world and where, how we're called to respond. That's the astounding thing here, I think, about how they responded. It's not just the process, but in a deep sense, when we did this, the Holy Spirit used the things that we did to reveal to us what the will of God was. And we weren't passive in it, but he used the very processes to begin the process of repentance so that we realigned ourselves and our attitudes and processes and procedures around what God himself is doing. And then the outcome um, is then pretty clear, right? Um, they actually follow this almost exactly. There's a clear plan. They're going to issue a letter, um, and it's going to be sent by these people, and it's really helpful that the plan was really clear and measurable and concrete. Um, when I lead uh, training with students uh, at major conferences, the response I hate is, after you've heard this, what is your response? What does you feel God calling you to do? And they, they tend to write things unless you tell them not to. I'm just called to love God more. What does that mean? That's nothing. That's an aspiration. That's not a plan. Right? Until your aspirations um, manifest in behavior, you haven't engaged with faithfulness. You've just nudged your own emotions. 
around. And so we've learned um, in our RC at the end of kind of calls to faith or to the Lordship of Christ or whatever, we used to call it session eight from, basically it was the eighth session in this kind of core curriculum that we used to do. Um, what, is, what specific action is God calling you to do to put into practice the things that you believe he said to you? What's the time? What's the date? Where are you going to do it? How will you get help to do it? Um, but a general aspiration to a feeling isn't enough. There has to be a plan. There, there's accountability in this plan. They send Paul and Barnabas along with a team of people to say, we all agreed to this. There's no question in our minds what the church should be doing together. And then they send the letter and goes out. And the impact is that people rejoice. People go, that was truly of God. And they're delighted. We're always all faced with life decisions. Some of them are huge. When should I retire? What kind of job should I have? Who should I marry? Should we have kids? How many kids should we have? Some of them are quite small um, or smaller. Where should my family live? How should we school our children? Some of them are teeny. How do I speak to this friend who needs to know Jesus? I want to suggest when God is getting your attention, he poses a question to you like this. Pay attention to what he's already doing. Search the scriptures individually and together so that your experiences are getting known about what is God's purpose and God's heart in the world? What does he actually command us to do? Sit with it. Invite other people to speak into it. And then commit yourself to it. Because the great thing about this cycle is that it's a reinforcing virtuous cycle. The more you put into practice the things that you know God has called you to do, the better you're able to observe the things that he's doing. The more keenly you're able to hear his voice, the more... Um, skilled your community becomes in discerning together what God is calling you to do. Because frankly, if what God sees every time is the community balks, I think he just stops speaking. What's the point, right? But as we engage in this process in, in um, reflection and obedience and um, repentance and belief, our ears become sharper, our wills become more malleable to his calling, and our eyes become more sensitive. And then we become true followers not from a steady state experience, but wherever he leads us. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, I'm grateful in my association with this church that I've watched them respond to your leading. Um, they've made changes. Um, they're becoming a different kind of people, and they're stretching themselves in new ways. So, Lord, honor yourself, I pray, um, in the ways that they do that. Continue to sharpen um, their ability um, to observe and reflect and in community um, discuss and discern what you're doing. And then... Uh, strengthen their will to do those things that you've called them to do so that Jesus Christ would be proclaimed, the Father would be glorified, and the Holy Spirit would have free access into every area of our life together. Amen.